Welcome to the Heidi Allen Case, Central New York's most enduring mystery. I'm your host, Ryan Zeldawando. To get an idea about the purpose of the show and who I am, check out the preview episode of this podcast at wrvo.org. This is episode one, The Disappearance. I want to get started by talking about New Haven. It's a town in Oswego County with a current population of about 28 or 2,900 people, which works out to be a little less than 100 people per every square mile. Its northern region shares a border with Lake Ontario, and that is certainly a great factor when it comes to the town's weather as well. Winters here are tough, and the area gets a lot of lake effect snow. As for the area itself, it can be described as, well, simple. Most of the adults are blue-collar people, with an average income of about $40,000 per household. It's not a particularly busy area either, the city of Syracuse being the most notable attraction within driving distance. There are also two nuclear power plants that are in the next town over that are one of the biggest employers in the area. The children attend New Haven Elementary, which is one of five schools in the Mexico School District. There's a firehouse that operates as the center of the town. All in all, it's a pretty average place and matches most of the surrounding towns in terms of the kind of people that live there and the things that they do. So, try to picture what it would take to flip this entire town of tough, hard-working people on its head with so much force that it hasn't entirely recovered from it 25 years later. This story takes place at the D&W convenience store. It's set at the intersection of Route 104 and Route 104B, which sits at the southeast corner of Lake Ontario. It unites the North Country and upstate New York to the central New York area above Syracuse, so it is pretty well traveled by commuters and locals alike. Despite where it's located, if you drive by there today, there isn't much around it to see. Once you get past the east side of Oswego that has some grocery stores, a car dealership, some retail places to shop at, there's not much. The closer you get to the D&W, the less updated things look. Most of the shops along the road are locally owned, and some of the buildings are abandoned. If you stand in front of the store, that's now a Valero gas station, there's nothing in sight except the crossing roads and some trees. In 1994, it was just a typical gas station. Picture it like any other local gas station you've ever seen. Plus, like I mentioned, there can be a decent amount of traffic going through that place because of its location. You would stop there to fill up your car, but you were able to go in, grab a cup of coffee, a pack of cigarettes, or whatever you needed at the moment, and then you moved along with your day. But April 3rd was just a little bit different than most other days. The first reason why that day was not a typical day is that it was Easter Sunday. Pretend you're 18 years old, working as a clerk at the D&W, and the night before thinking to yourself how it would be an easy day at work because so many people would be spending the day with their families. Sure, some people might come in and grab some things on their way somewhere or come inside to pay for gas, but probably not all that busy after the morning rush when everyone gets where they need to be for the rest of the day. That morning, the person who was actually working at the D&W was an 18-year-old from New Haven by the name of Heidi Allen. Now back in 1994, working at a gas station was probably busier than it would be to work at one today. That's because not many gas pumps in 1994 had the ability for customers to pay without going inside. Through some questioning of some trusted adults in my life and with the confirmation of Heidi's older sister, 
We know if you were paying for gas at the D&W in 1994, you were paying inside the store. The second reason that day was a little different, though much less significant, still played a role that morning. As anyone who's lived in the area will know all too well, the weather finally starts to change around the beginning of April. There was some melting snow left on the ground April 3rd, but there were still no leaves growing back on the trees. It was somewhere in between winter and spring, too cold for summer attire, but maybe a little too warm for a winter jacket. It started snowing that morning eventually, but we'll hear more about that later. Heidi Allen was a student at the nearby Onondaga Community College and had been working at the DNW for about two and a half years. She had attended Bishop Cunningham for high school, but when it closed down for good in 1992, she wrapped up her high school diploma at OCC and went on to study human services. Lisa Buskey is Heidi's older sister. Here's what she remembers about Heidi while they were growing up. She was energetic, very athletic. She was known as the Tower of Power for her volleyball skills. And she played soccer. And she had a contagious or infectious smile. That's what her friends, you know, that's what they all remember was the smile and what they miss. And she just, she always put others first. She was a outgoing kid. In addition to being athletic, Heidi was pretty tall too, around 5'11". Definitely not someone you wanted to mess around with. Her boyfriend came to work with her that day. His name was Brett Law, who was 24 years old at the time. Six years is a big age difference, especially for an 18-year-old, but it didn't seem to bother too many people around them. Heidi's family obviously trusted him, as he spent the night of April 2nd with her in the home where she lived with her aunt and grandmother, which was next door to her parents' home. Brett joined her at the DNW, so he could stay with her to make sure she was safe until people actually started showing up. That's a nice thing for a boyfriend to do. I mean, he woke up with his girlfriend to go to a gas station at 5.45 on a Sunday morning. That's dedication. He was very doting. <laughs> he didn't like that she opened it alone. And, I mean, we called our parents anytime we left anywhere. You know, he had to use a phone. <laughs> and then when we got to where we were going, we called. And we did this, you know, 30 years ago. That's just the way we were raised. And that's how we were. And so he went to work with her. He just, it wasn't out of the norm. That's just what he did. You know, and he sat with her till it was time for him to head home. By all accounts, it was a pretty normal morning in the DNW. Heidi decided to combat the confused early April weather with a pair of white tennis shoes, some light blue jeans, and a gray sweatshirt with Syracuse U written across the front in green and blue plaid letters. So once the pair arrived at the DNW, everything went to plan. Brett was hanging out. Heidi was tending to the customers who made their way to grab whatever they needed before they embarked on their Easter plans. Then, about an hour in, there were people inside the store. Everything was normal, so Brett left. And after he left, everything was fine. Customers kept coming in and out for the following maybe 45, 50 minutes after Brett's departure. One of these customers was Richard Thibodeau who went into the DNW and paid cash for two packs of cigarettes that morning at 7.42. Then, as the Syracuse Post-Standard reported the next morning, around 7.58, a customer waved down a sheriff's deputy because he had noticed nobody was there behind the counter. Heidi's car keys were still there, her jacket, her purse. It all remained on the counter where she had left them. The silent alarm behind the counter never got pulled and there was no identifiable sign of any struggle taking place. 
but Heidi was gone. For a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about for the remainder of the show, I don't want to claim that I know these things are 100% true, because I'm telling this story the best way I can based on what I've learned. But I can say with complete certainty that nobody in New Haven had any idea what happened to Heidi, except for whoever kidnapped her. If someone knew, they were really good at keeping secrets. In that moment, nobody had any idea if she ran away, if she was kidnapped, or if she was even alive. Here's what Heidi's sister, Lisa Blusky, remembers about that morning. I found out through a message on my answering machine, because uh, the phone rang, and then I didn't answer it because it was Easter Sunday, and so I figured somebody was calling in to work, and I wasn't going in early. Bad enough I had to work. I wasn't going to go in early. And all my aunt said on the machine was, Heidi is missing. Get to the store. And she hung up, and I just remember looking at my husband and said, that can't be real. And I went out, and I played the machine, and I rewound it, and I played it again. You don't probably know what an answering machine is. But back in the day, there was this thing, and it had a little mini cassette tape in it. And I just kept hitting the rewind and the play, the rewind and the play, until my husband stopped me and said, we have to go. And I got dressed for work, figuring it was a mistake, because New Haven is just... Nobody even knows when they drive through New Haven. They were in Oswego, and then they're in Mexico. Like, they don't even realize they drove through two towns in the process. And once I got there and saw the tape and the lights and all the police cars, I knew it was real. I wasn't allowed to see my parents. They wouldn't let me in until, um, you know, my husband said, this is her sister. And... I went and stood at the outer pump, and then it started to snow. It was, I don't know, people, all the, you know, people just slowing up and staring and watching and just snowed harder. And I remember going home at some point to get pictures, and I had got married the summer before, and they needed photos. So there's still missing pictures in my wedding album that the sheriffs had so that they would have photos to identify her and put on posters and whatnot. From that day, 25 years ago, through right now, there are a lot of people whose lives were forever changed because of what happened that morning at the DNW. I'm not just talking about Heidi and her family either, but an entire web of people. Let's start with Richard Thibodeau, the last man who bought something at the DNW before Heidi disappeared. I spoke with him back in December. For all of the interviews you'll hear, it's necessary to remember that it was so long ago, because over time people forget stuff, and the more stories get told over and over, there's a possibility that they change a little bit. Richard is 72 years old now, and he appears to be the most harmless human being alive. He's around 5'5", has white hair, glasses, but he looks pretty good for someone his age. In a moment, you'll hear Richard's grandchildren running around and his house phone going off. But here's his account of what happened that morning. I got up, uh, really didn't pay no attention at the time because it was, you had supposed to change your clocks back. We didn't, we forgot. Uh, So I got up and uh, here's the phone right here. So I got up and uh, she was still sleeping. The kids were still sleeping. 
The she Richard is referring to is Teresa Crawford, his longtime girlfriend, who he is still with to this day. And uh, so I just jumped in the van, went down to D&W Hole, and uh, bought two packs of cigarettes. When I got there, there was already somebody there parked in front of the doors. So I parked the back of him, walked in. Well, this person was coming out of the store, and he held the door open for me while I went in the store. Ordered two packs of basic cigarettes. She gave them to me. I paid her. I walked out, got in my van, waited for this guy to leave, and it took him a little while because he's standing there. He's opening up his pack of cigarettes. He threw the paper in the car, <coughs> lit up a cigarette, and I'm just sitting there waiting for him to move. Finally, he decided to get in his car and drive, get out of the way so I can drive out. So he went right and... I don't know where he went. I, I didn't even know the guy anyway. And uh, I went home. And we got ready to come to Easter dinner to her grandmother's house, which her grandmother's house was right here. It seems pretty innocent, right? We were here all day long. Eventually, Richard and his family moved into Teresa's grandmother's house, and that's where I met him. But going back to a story from that morning, let's break down some of the details. The last known receipt from that morning at the D&W was from when Richard purchased those two packs of cigarettes at 7.42. Richard was waiting for the man parked in front of him to leave before he could. That little tidbit about the time Richard spent waiting to leave is really important. If he had purchased those cigarettes at 7.42, that leaves about a 16-minute window for someone to go into the store and take Heidi. But if Richard sat there for a little while, it makes things a bit more interesting. For starters, how long did it really take for Richard to get out of there? If the guy took a minute, things don't really change that much. But if he took longer than that, it shortens the amount of time in between Richard leaving the store and when Heidi was discovered missing. Because I wanted to see how long Richard might have had to wait, I decided to go there myself and try exactly what Richard said happened a couple times at different speeds to see exactly what time frame we have to work with. I wanted to see how fast it could be, or how long it could realistically take to determine how much time the perpetrator would have had in Richard's recollection of events. The gas pumps are probably about 10 feet from the door, which means it'd be impossible for two cars, especially if one of them is as big as Richard's van, to fit through that gap. So based on the actions described by Richard, there is no way he was there for that long. Going through those actions as fast as I possibly could took only about 31 seconds. And when I tried to stretch it out for as long as I thought was realistically possible, it took about 43 seconds. The wild card here is how long the man actually stood outside before he drove away. But based on what Richard told me, it couldn't have been more than 2 or 3 minutes at the very longest. That leaves about 13 or 14 minutes for someone to go in the store, which doesn't help us put a timeline together any better. And that same information probably didn't help law enforcement during their investigation either. Let's move on and figure out what happened from here. Here's where that 25-year-long fallout begins. This next event is the first of many turning points in the story, but it is definitely the most important because of the chain of events it created. Let's go back to Richard again. Remember the end of what you heard from him when he mentions Teresa's grandmother's house? And we got ready to come to Easter dinner 
to her grandmother's house, which her grandmother's house was right here. That's where the next major event happened, just a couple of hours later. Yeah, well, it come up on TV that someone was missing at the DNW. I didn't have no idea who it was. And uh, her grandmother said something to me. And I said, yeah, I was, I was there this morning. She says, well, maybe you ought to tell me you were there. So I called them, and I told them I was at least there, you know. And they, So they said they were going to send somebody to come talk to me. Yeah, this was, oh, probably, I don't know what time I called them. But uh, anyway, they did send somebody. But I had called my brother that morning to wish him Happy Easter. This was well after 10 o'clock. And and I was telling him how they're going to send a sheriff down here to talk to me. He said, what for? He says, I guess... Someone was missing at the DNW, and I said I was there this, that morning. Uh, so he says, oh, all right, so happy Easter, and let him do what he had to do that day. Richard called the cops to let them know he was there. At face value, it's a good thing to do, right? You see that the person you just bought cigarettes from was kidnapped from the store you were just at. He cooperated with the sheriff, answered his questions, and that was that. Keep it in mind for later, though, because we'll come back to it. The ensuing days in New Haven were as chaotic as you could imagine. I'll go back to Richard here to explain what he did in the days following Heidi being kidnapped. And we went on a search for Heidi. And I had a bunch of people in my car and in my van when we went on the search. We went to Albright Road. And then from Albright Road, after we got done searching Albright Road... We went back to uh, the Heidi Allen Center, they called it, back then, which was the uh, fire department in New Haven. And uh, then uh, this detective, Wheeler, asked me to come outside. We went in his car, and he asked me to fill out this questionnaire. And I didn't know what the... I forget what the questionnaire was. Something about what would you do if, what would you do in this situation, you know? I had no idea what the hell this thing was, so more or less he filled it out for me. Richard mentioned his search for Heidi and his big white Chevy van went down Albright Road, which is directly across from the D&W. He searched for Heidi with the rest of New Haven, and there really was a united effort to find her from day one after she went missing, starting with the New Haven Firehouse becoming the Heidi Allen Surge headquarters, all the way through the local media in Oswego and Syracuse covering it in newspapers and on television. New Haven is a quiet town, and suddenly it was front-page news. That's a completely different environment than most people in the area were used to. Going from a quiet rural town to the center of a shocking kidnapping case of a teenager shook up the community. But it really is interesting to think about the spot Richard is in here. Why is he filling out questionnaires? Did law enforcement know something about him that he managed to keep secret from everyone else? Now, we'll hear from Mark Livonier, who is the senior producer here at WRVO and the architect behind most of the music you'll hear on this podcast. 
Mark grew up in Oswego and was a couple years younger than Heidi. He never knew her, but his perspective as a teenager in the area at the time all of this is going on is a unique one that provides some context about the extent of the efforts to find Heidi. The story he tells is one from his childhood, long before anything happened at the DNW. It provides a stark contrast of how the same community reacted to another tragic event. So I think I was in fifth grade or so, and in the grammar school I went to was right across the street from the high school in Oswego. And one of the high school kids had passed away from some kind of unfortunate accident. His family was apparently well-loved in the community, and so was he. He was one of these kind of friends with everyone guys, so his death was particularly tragic. They decided to hold a memorial for him, I remember, and being a kid across the street at the grammar school, I had no idea who this family was. I had no idea who this guy was, but they pretty much canceled classes for half a day and trotted all the kids around this memorial stone that they had picked out and put in front of the high school or to the side of it. And everyone was very sad and solemn, and I remember teachers talking about how great of a guy he was and how much he'll be missed and what an impact he made. And again, I don't even remember how he died, but I remember how sad everyone was. So I remember this story coming to mind later on when I was older in high school when Heidi Allen disappeared. And they never really gave us updates on what was going on with the investigation with her. She didn't go to Oswego, but it was just the next little town over. From what I knew, no one really knew her. So in that way, that is a stranger, more confusing, sadder sort of story for someone in your peer group. And at least our school district, from what I recall and teachers, kind of treated it as a non-event. Like Mark said, that's just his memory of what happened. But that's pretty significant. This is a moment that my age is going to show. But I can't imagine something like that happening now, or even a couple years back when I was in high school. If an 18-year-old went missing, I'm confident that teachers and the other adults in the school would be talking to the kids about it. What Mark's recollection emphasizes the most is that people were scared. Since nobody knew if Heidi was dead or alive, or who took her, or why it would happen in the first place. What were they supposed to say to a bunch of kids in high school? Now I want to go back to something from the morning of April 3rd that I said to keep in mind earlier, because this is where it starts to come full circle. Remember when Richard called the police to let them know he was there that morning? I'll let him explain what he and Teresa did after he took the questionnaire from the sheriff's deputy. So after that, he asked me to come down to the sheriff's department and give a statement down there, that take an interview. They were eliminating people. At the time, they were saying they were eliminating people. I said, it's fine. So I drove my van down there, her and I went down. And, uh, oh, they must have questioned us for, we got there probably around 5 o'clock. And uh, we were there till probably 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning. And they wanted to keep my van overnight for for a while. They wanted they wanted to see if I would let them keep my van. I says, 
Sure, take it. I don't care. Do whatever you want. So they went through it, fingerprinted it and all that. They went through the whole nine yards. And I didn't know I was going to be there that many hours. And for them to question me like they did. It, it seemed like they were insinuating I kidnapped her because I had this van. And, and this is my thought in my mind. Was, what are these people doing? And thinking I kidnapped her? I was the only one in the van. How could I do anything like that? There's our first turn in the case. Heidi was missing for six days now, and Richard's van had already been examined by law enforcement. Everything we've heard so far has painted Richard as a cooperative person. So why does it feel like the sheriffs know something about Richard that we don't? Now I want to talk about Richard's van. I've mentioned it a couple of times now, but I really want to paint a picture so you can get it. The van in question is a white 1976 Chevy. It's got a horizontal black stripe going through the driver's side, connecting the black door in the front of the van to the black double doors in the back that had big rear-facing windows on each door. The other side had a large black sliding door that you could fit bigger things through. Think of it almost like a moving truck. It makes sense, too. Richard was a construction worker. He had a big family. So having something that big to be able to accommodate everything he had to deal with in a day is a smart thing to do. But nobody would blame you if you thought the van was a little creepy looking at first glance. On the day it was seized by police, there were two distinct things on Richard's van that were pretty interesting. The first was a sticker. It said, All American Dad, and it had a picture of Homer Simpson on it. The reason I find this interesting is because for someone who didn't live through most of the 90s, that feels like an authentic thing to do. He liked the Simpsons and he was a proud father. It makes me think of him as a regular guy. For some historical background, the same week that all of this stuff in New Haven was going on was the same week Kurt Cobain died. How does it get any more 90s than that? The second thing on the van that stands out was placed right above that Homer Simpson sticker, and it's a little more relevant to the story at hand. In the window of the left back door was an 8x11 piece of paper with a large black and white photo of Heidi Allen's face at the top. The rest of the paper gave some description. It starts with missing, in all caps under Heidi's photo. Under that, it says her name, gives her height and weight, describes her hair color, and the clothes she wore to work the morning of April 3rd. It also provides a phone number for the county sheriff's department. I also want to describe the photo of Heidi that was on that piece of paper. It just looks like a school picture, but it became the symbol of her. That picture was plastered all over the place, and to this day is the photo most identifiable with her. If you Google Heidi, that's the first photo that comes up. She's wearing a loose-fitting blue V-neck sweater with the fabric stitched together horizontally and red and white accents on the V. Heidi's curly brown hair sat on her shoulders and fell a couple of inches further down her back. There was a big smile on her face, highlighted by the dimples on both of her cheeks. That picture has become synonymous with Heidi. Through all of the mystery that comes with this whole situation, this photo has really been the one constant. During Richard's search for Heidi, he put that flyer up there in his van, just like everyone else in New Haven did too. They were everywhere. But let's think about the worst case scenario here. Let's say Richard kidnapped Heidi. It would mean he went home to his family, called the cops on himself, searched with the rest of the community, 
and put her photo up in the back window of his van trying to fool everyone else. That sounds crazy. Let's completely transition here and introduce another character to the story. Now we will look at the same timeline of April 3rd through the following weeks, but through the eyes of someone else. His name is Gary. He was 40 years old at the time and he was nothing like Richard. Where Richard stopped drinking and was a family man, Gary liked to have a drink. He was a regular at the local bars and his friends could always depend on him to have fun, which sometimes included some trouble with the law for some small drug charges and things like that. He also wasn't afraid to stick up for himself and throw his fists around if the situation called for it either. A good metaphor for Gary is a guy you would love to have on your team, but somebody you would hate playing against. But the caveat here is that Gary's last name was Thibodeau, and he was Richard's younger brother. Depending on who you ask, Gary did a lot of different things on April 3rd, 1994. Richard told me many of those stories were not true. But the lack of concrete information here makes my job difficult, so I'll do the best I can to describe it. Let's just go with the simple version. Gary was at home with his girlfriend Sharon, and he got a call from Richard around 10 or 10.30 in the morning. That's when Gary found out a sheriff was on the way to question Richard about the kidnapping at the DNW, and the brothers wish each other a happy Easter. Then Gary and Sharon took a trip over to Massachusetts. That means Gary didn't stick around to see the fallout of what happened with Heidi. Instead, he and Sharon had the start of what I'd call a crappy couple of weeks. It is important to mention here that the Thibodeau brothers were from Massachusetts, moving over to central New York later in life, so Gary was heading back to his home state. Somewhere over the next couple of days, their tan 1983 Cadillac broke down and he had to replace a drive shaft. The story was that it happened on April 5th, which would be the Tuesday of that week. Do not forget about that. That place is Gary in Massachusetts, and this feels like a good place to talk a little bit more about him. He had been arrested a couple times, mostly drug-related stuff. The contrast between him and Richard is strong, because at this point Richard was clean and Gary was pretty tough. I never met Gary, but he's been described to me as a funny guy who probably didn't give off the greatest first impression. Despite that, people close to him knew he wasn't an angel, but thought he was the sweetest guy around. He was definitely more imposing than Richard, who was eight years older. Let's fast forward a couple weeks to May 25th. Heidi was still missing, and nobody knew who took her, or why it happened, or where she was. It was 54 days removed from that Easter morning, and the people of New Haven still had no answers. Gary Thibodeau and Sharon Raposa were arrested on May 25th for drug charges and held without bail. Gary was being held as a fugitive for an outstanding charge from over two years earlier in Massachusetts, for the felony possession and distribution of cocaine in Lemonster, Massachusetts. The two of them were arrested in Oswego County and sent back to Massachusetts to be put in jail. Gary was to remain in jail until the other warrants for his arrest in Massachusetts and California were resolved and he could be sentenced. And as for what happened to Richard on that day Gary was arrested, it at least started like the rest of them. He woke up and got ready for work. But as Richard's girlfriend Teresa tells us, the day became far from normal. I was home. My daughter had just gotten on the school bus. He had just left for work with my brother. And um, it wasn't, my daughter's getting ready to get on the bus. And all of a sudden I have like eight, ten cop cars coming in my driveway. I didn't know they had him down the road. Guns out, him and my poor brother. And 
had arrested him. Next thing I know, my brother comes in and he goes, they, they just took Dick. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, they just, just arrested him up the road. And it was just like, I couldn't believe it, you know? So he brought me down to my mom's and got a hold of his sister. And we just went to went down to the courthouse and found that while he was going into court as they were bringing him in and tried to figure out what we could do to get him out and get his lawyer and everything. There's the arrest. Law enforcement finally got the man they were looking for, and it happened to be Richard. There's some irony that comes in here as well. I'll let Richard tell you about the arrest and what led to it. That stuff never crossed my mind about kidnapping anybody or doing anything like that, but... uh... Anyway, uh, they uh, wanted to get blood work from me. Gave them blood work, pubic hairs, hairs off my head. Uh, they kept the van for 24 hours, found nothing. Uh, I, I did a lie detector test with them, and I passed that. And then... Uh, a while after that, they uh, arrested me on May 25th, which they call National Kidnapping Day. So, and there was a bunch of cars out there. They had their guns drawn, everything. They thought it was Al Capone or something. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it was a nightmare anyway. So, Richard Thibodeau was arrested for kidnapping Heidi Allen on May 25th, 1994. National Kidnapping Day. Go figure. After doing some fact-checking, May 25th is actually National Missing Children's Day. But Richard's version is a little more ironic, so we'll let him have that one. May 25th, they arrested me for kidnapping Heidi Allen. I said, you guys are crazy. I didn't kidnap nobody, you dumbasses. I was, well, I, I was furious. I, I did a lot more swearing than, uh, than that. While we were coming, while they arrested me and they were bringing me down in the car. I called them all kinds of names. I was so furious, it wasn't funny. Yeah, so. Since then, I had no respect for them people because accusing somebody of doing something that they didn't do. I don't know. I don't know what else uh, I could tell you because it's about the whole nine years that uh, I went through, I guess. On the next episode, we'll talk about what happens to the Thibodeau brothers after May 25th. They're both in custody, and Richard Thibodeau is the presumed kidnapper of Heidi Allen. What's the evidence against him? And does Richard's arrest mean we'll get some clues about where Heidi is? We'll cover it all next week on the Heidi Allen case, Central New York's most enduring mystery. This series is produced by WRVO Public Media. It was researched, written, and hosted by Ryan Zalduando, with help from Catherine Loper, Jason Smith, and Leah Landry. This episode was edited and produced by Mark Lavonier, who also composed and performed the music heard in the series. You can find this series online at wrvo.org.